1991, Mount Ellen was the focus of the resort. It had all of this new stuff like snowmaking and the resort's only detachable chairlift, the Green Mountain Express. I think at the time it was the fastest lift in North America. You know, and Lincoln Peak still had the bed base, but, you know, it was doing fewer visits. It had no real snowmaking. And there were, you know, long lines. The Sugar Bravo was a triple chair. Gatehouse was a double. Valley House was a double. You know, the top up on North Links was a platter pole. And, you know, there was no real base area besides the old base lodge. So, you know, fast forward to today, and there's only three lifts that are in the same configuration as they were before. Mm-hmm. We've got 70% snowmaking coverage across the resort, you know, in a revitalized Lincoln Peak base area. So it's really a different look in the base area and for lift infrastructure, but really the trails and the terrain have really stayed pretty pretty true to what they were in 91, which is great. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Got another episode today on one of the best mountains in the Northeast and one of my personal favorites, Sugarbush. First, a reminder, subscribe to the free storm skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com. I am also in need of more iTunes reviews. So if you're listening there, please help out and drop me a review. Also, follow the podcast on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal and on Facebook at The Storm Skiing Journal. The Storm Skiing Podcast is brought to you in part by Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a biannual, large-format print title celebrating mountain culture. Head over to mountaingazette.com and enter code GOHIRE10 for 10% off subscriptions. Sign up now to make sure you get the first issue. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. The Mountain Gazette returns in November in print form for the first time in eight years. These issues will sell out. Grab your subscription today over at mountaingazette.com. Mountain Gazette, when in doubt, go higher. Episode 28, John Hammond, President and General Manager of Sugarbush, Vermont. Okay, here we go. Our second of three consecutive Vermont episodes. Jay Peak was last week. Sugarbush is this week. Mount Snow will be next. If you're a longtime listener, you may be wondering why we're returning to Sugarbush so soon. After all, I hosted longtime president and GM Wynn Smith at the beginning of 2020. But in August, Wynn announced that he was retiring from his very successful second career. And that meant Altera needed a new top manager at the mountain. John Hammond is that person. John is more than well qualified. He has spent his entire career at the mountain, starting as an intern in 1991. That means he was a firsthand witness to Sugarbush's dramatic transformation under the American Skiing Company back in the 90s. Then the transition to a new ownership group led by Winsmith just after September 11th. And finally, the sale to Altera last year. John's going to give us some compelling insight into all of that. And he's going to lay out his vision for Sugarbush, both in this COVID-restricted season and well beyond. Let's do it. My guest today was named President and General Manager of Sugarbush, Vermont in August. Sugarbush is the third largest ski area in New England, with 111 trails and 97 wooded area acres spread across six peaks on a 2,600-foot vertical drop. He first worked for Sugarbush as marketing intern in 1991 and has been head of ski patrol and, most recently, vice president of mountain operations and recreational services. John Hammond is my guest. 
John, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, first of all, John, I hear it's snowing up there today. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, we got a couple inches of snow last night. I think there's about three on the summit, and uh, temps are starting to get cold. All the leaves are off the trees. Uh, starting to look like winter. Glad to hear that. What's your opening day this year? We are scheduled to open on the 20th, Saturday before Thanksgiving. If we can do it, we'll still open the day before for pass holders, and uh, we'll see what happens. Wonderful. Can't wait to get up there. Well, a huge congratulations, John, on getting the top job at Sugarbush. How does it feel to be in charge of the place where you've spent your entire career? Well, it's pretty uh, exciting and terrifying all at the same time. I think uh, everyone will agree that uh, Wynn has perfect timing for uh, most things that he does in his life, and uh, le- leaving this uh, summer was probably just one more of the great decisions he's made. You've been at Sugarbush for a really long time, since 1991, as I mentioned in the intro. Uh, what was your first role at the Mountain, John? Yeah, so in 1991, I did an internship uh, making cold calls uh, to college ski groups down here in the basement of the lower admin building. And I was getting a, getting a degree at uh, UVM in recreation management, and this is where I started. And how successful were you at cold calling? So, so that's the beauty of doing a quick internship is I made all these calls and I disappeared. I have no idea if they were successful <laughs> or not. Wait, is that something that you like? For most people, that's a very uncomfortable thing, just cold calling and trying to make sales. Yeah, it was uh, not the uh, ideal dream job, so that's why I, I did not go back in that direction when I came back to do a second internship. So you're at UVM. Uh, you did that first internship. What was your next role at the Mountain, and what was the timing in between that and your first role? Yeah, so um, the next year I did an internship for the Mountain Manager. I basically had fulfilled most of the credit requirements I needed, so I was like, well, I can get a six-credit internship and work at a ski area for the winter. That sounds great. Mm. So I worked for the mountain manager and worked in lift ops and sort of all the on-mountain departments and then did a little bit with ski school. And uh, while I was doing that, I sort of realized that uh, the ski patrol job seemed like the most fun and the, uh, you know, I liked helping people and getting out skiing, of course. So that was the path I took. And really, I, uh, I went from there, you know, patrol to lift ops or the uh, lift supervisor and then patrol director. And then just kept gaining uh, responsibilities from there, from lift ops, parks, all the Mount Ellen stuff, ski school, rentals, repair, and more to this. So did you did you go right out of UVM? Did you just go straight to Sugarbush full time? I no, I worked seasonally up until '99, I think. So it was really just I was doing construction in the summer and working in at the resort for the winters. And that's still a fairly common path in Vermont, is that right? That, that would I would say ninety percent of our employees are you know seasonal. <laughs> right. I don't know what the exact percentage is, but it is a, a high percentage. It, it, as the resort has grown around you, have you seen an increase in the number of folks working there full time year round? Yeah, we really have. Um, you know, obviously doing summer operations and having Claybrook and the other properties that we manage has really increased the amount of work that's around and sort of uh, made it a little bit easier for us to retain a lot of our full-time year-round like managers and good staff. So that's been one of the added benefits of uh, having summer ops and sort of the development we've seen. So, so it sounds like you've really worked in all parts of the mountain. Was that, were you sort of preparing for the job you have now or, or, or are you a guy who just really likes to do a lot of different things and learn about a lot of different things? Yeah, I I mean, I would say that I definitely like getting out and getting my hands dirty and sort of seeing what's going on. Um, I definitely, you know, enjoy new challenges and, uh, 
you know, I think I gravitated to the things that I enjoyed doing. And uh, so the more things I enjoyed, the more things I did. Is there any part of the mountain that you're not familiar with? It, and, and I ask because, uh, you know, I've, I've gotten to know a lot more of these mountain leaders over the years. And 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 uh, Lazo Vete, who owns Platte Hill Mountain down in in New York, sometimes I'll text him and be like, "Oh, I'm you know I'm I'm fixing a tractor right now," which which is not necessarily something that that you would always think of the head of a, a ski area doing. But you know, he owns the resort; he's doing every every part of it. Have you been involved in every little part of it, or or are there parts where uh, you you you're, you haven't had the chance to do that deep dive into? Yeah, I think that, you know, we've had really good transparency in our leadership group here so that, you know, I think all of us have been exposed to the other departments pretty well, you know, but I would say the finance end of it is uh, one that everyone keeps a little tighter to their chest and didn't didn't share as much information. I mean, we had all of our reporting and things like that, but, you mm-hmm. know, the team upstairs really does a great job of uh, keeping the numbers in line and making sure we're getting the information we need to and making good decisions, giving us the information for us to help make good decisions. So I would say that's the one area that I probably haven't had as much experience in, but, you know, I've been working with Kevin Babick for 20 some years and, uh, you know, I think we've got a great relationship and the team that he has up there has been great. Do you find yourself getting a little more pulled into that now that you're in the top job? Uh, absolutely. I mean, this is, uh, this year especially is sort of a, uh, a random year. There's no muscle memory for, uh, running through COVID, you know, you're not like, mm-hmm. Oh, it, it rained and it's going to be windy. We're going to do this. It's okay. Mm-hmm. What is, how many people can we have in the base lodge and uh, how do they get from the parking lot to uh, up to the mountain? So that, that part has been a little distracting uh, to keep sane. I've been going over and helping uh, the guys frame uh, the new cabins that we're building for the little personal base lodges. So that's uh, keeping me grounded. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That, that That's what I'm talking about. It's just every, every little, Part of the resort, you're you're involved in some way. Um, I, I do want to talk a little more about your COVID operations and everything a little later. But but first, I want to rewind back to 1991 because I think it's it, it's it's a little distant now, and, and it's easy to forget how different Sugarbush was. So so take us back there, John. You show up to Sugarbush in 1991. I don't know if you if you were familiar with the resort at that point, if you'd skied there as a kid. Um, but can you describe what was Sugarbush like? in 1991, and how is that different from what it is today? Yeah, so in in 1991, Mount Ellen was the focus of the resort. It had all of this new stuff like snowmaking and the resort's only detachable chairlift, the Green Mountain Express. I think at the time Mm -hmm. it was the fastest lift in North America. You know, and Lincoln Peak still had the bed base, but it was, um, you know, it was doing fewer visits. It had real no no real snowmaking. There were, you know, long lines. The Sugar Bravo was a triple chair. Gatehouse was a double Valley House was a double. You know, the top up on North Links was a platter pole, which was also a pretty fast lift. It was one of those detachables. It was quite a ride. And, you know, there was no real base area besides the old base lodge. So, you know, fast forward to today, and there's only three lifts that are in the same configuration as they were before. We've got five detachables. You know, the Castle Rock's the only double chair, and that will stay a double chair. You know, that was the first lift that uh, Wynn put in with some adventures. and. Mm-hmm. We've got 70% snowmaking coverage across the resort, you know, and, and revitalized Lincoln Peak base area. So it's it's a, a really a different different look in the base area and for lift infrastructure, but really the trails and the terrain have really stayed pretty pretty true to what they were in 91, which is great. And how reliant was the resort on natural snow 29 years ago? Um, 
Mount Ellen was pretty pretty good. You know, I think they've we've increased snowmaking since '91 over there. Probably it was probably could name the trails easier than figure out what the percentage was. But uh, you know, it's it's definitely it had some robust snowmaking for the '90s, so that was good. But Lincoln Peak really had a, a pretty uh, anemic system to make snow, so we relied heavily on uh, natural. And we still do. I mean, it's a great, that's one of the reasons I'm here is because of the natural snow that we get. Yeah, it's amazing. That whole, the whole spine can, is really one of the few areas in the Northeast that could feasibly operate without snowmaking on a consistent basis. So it's great to have that kind of consistency there. Um, as far as, you know, thinking back to that era, how did Sugarbush compare to its peer resorts like Killington or Stowe or Jay Peak? Because, you know, all of those mountains have made a lot of advancements over the years, too. So it's not like they were necessarily competing against the Killington of today or the Stowe of today. So so was it more or less in that same class or, or had it fallen behind a little bit? I would say at the time, you know, Mount Ellen was the, the spot that was focused on and they were right in line with the rest of the other resorts. Um, Lincoln Peak was definitely a little bit further behind uh, being on forest service land and sort of. You know, just being a little bit, you know, it was a little little behind on the snowmaking side. There wasn't really a great easy water source until, uh, you know, ASC bought the place and put the pond in down by Mad River, and that really made the big difference for us. So let's talk about that. American Skiing Company comes in in 1995, and they were moving very quickly to upgrade that mountain. Just how extensive were the changes, John, and how fast did they move? Uh, very fast. <laughs> in that year, you know, miles of snowmaking pipe were installed, um, all the connections to the water sources. It, you know, it was a, a crazy time. You know, slide brick was put in and five other lifts were installed or moved um, all in one season. You know, it was, you know, trying trying to just put the things in the parking lot was hard to figure out which lift was which. <laughs> You know, I still, I still remember uh, cr- Christmas Eve, we were doing moving load test barrels from Slidebook up to Northlink so we could open for Christmas Day, you know, and we're doing this and the snowmaking guns are just pounding on, down on top of us. And it was just, it was, it was bizarre. And, you know, Blaze and Les are up there pointing and yelling at us to get moving. And it was pretty wild times. I, I can't even imagine. I mean, even just thinking about the permitting process in Vermont for one lift, right? And, and you're talking about five lifts in one off season. I mean, how crazy was it to just watch that transformation happen right before your eyes? So luckily at the time I was just a lowly carpenter and a ski patroller. So it was nice and easy for me to just mm-hmm. stand back and watch in excitement and uh, see what's happening and really just pitch in. I mean, there was a huge amount of teamwork that happened during that time. And, you know, I still, you know, talk to the guys that were running the place back at that, you know, during, um, during that era and, that group is still very tight, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And how much of that group, because those, those going through things like that, while they can be stressful and uh, they're also really exciting, right? And, and they build a cohesion with the group. Uh, how, of the folks, even just the, the everyday workers like you were at the time, how many of those folks are still working for the resort in some capacity or connected to it in some capacity? Yeah, there's a lot of people still in town and around or in the industry that are that were uh, here in 95 and in the early days. Um, but I think there's probably only three or four employees that are still around, you know, that were working for the resort at the time. Actually, uh, Dave Forward and I worked at the Castle Rock chair. Um, that was my, you know, one of the first jobs is my internship outside. And, you know, he's still our Mount Ellen supervisor. And, 
So there's 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 a lot of people that are around, but you know, not many are still actually still working at the resort. So you mentioned the Slidebrook Express. For the folks who may not be familiar with Sugarbush, uh, that is the longest chairlift, I believe, in the world. Correct me if I'm wrong. It connects Mount Ellen to Lincoln Peak. I believe that's around two miles. And before that lift was put in, I used to have to go back and forth in shuttle buses. Just how much did that lift change the experience of skiing at Sugarbush? So it changes a lot. I mean, it's a great lift connecting the two mountains. Like you said, it's two miles long, longest uh, chairlift, I believe, in the world. And, you know, it's a great ride. You know, unfortunately, a lot was given up to get that lift installed about operating times and how we can do service on it and the, you know, widths of the work roads and sort of what happens operationally. But, you know, mm-hmm. compared to the old blue buses, the, the old school buses we had that were in between the two, the two base lodges, this is a, a great improvement. You know, the, but yeah. probably the bigger impact was, uh, you know, the snowmaking and other lifts that they put in um, during that time. But it, it's, it's a great ride. And, you know, it really does when the snow, snow conditions are good and you can uh, go between both sides. It's really, you know, a great day. Do you think ultimately, John, that, that those trade-offs were worth it to have Slidebook Express to give up all the things you mentioned? Uh, the reason I ask is, you know, that lift's been in 25 years now. Um, you know, feasibly it could be in another 15, 20 years. But is is there a, a has Sugarbush thought long term about well, what if we take that lift out and make and trade some stuff back? Yeah, I, I don't know if that's going to be possible with the state regulations. I mean, the thought of changing that lift to a gondola changes the world of it completely. You know, it's a long ride. It's an exposed ride with very limited access, and that's why it sort of doesn't run as much as we would like it to. But, you know, ultimately, it's a key part to the resort to have the two lifts or the two mountains connected. So I, I wouldn't want to get rid of it. You know, when I had Wynn on the podcast in January, he mentioned that Slybrook Express can only run when there's enough snow under it for your team to access it via sled. Why is that? Why 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 do they need to be on snowmobiles to access that lift? Or do I have that wrong? No, that that's correct. You know, there's two things to it. One is we able if if the lift will go down and we need to evacuate it, we need to be able to get people out of there. So, you know, if it's all ground cover and you know Getting people to walk out the two miles is not really a feasible option. So mm. there's that side of it. But then also you need to have the mechanics need to go and check the line before they run it. Or if there's a, an issue with the lift, you need to be able to get to the tower and uh, inspect it or change an RPD or whatever might need to happen out there. And I don't want to jinx you here, John, but have you ever had to evacuate that lift? <laughs> uh, let's not talk about that. The, but the answer is no. I'll <laughs> knock on some wood. So Okay. I, I will too. I'll help you out on my end. Um, so, so going to the trail map in the ASCR, obviously they made a lot of chairlift changes, uh, but, but they added on these wooded areas to the trail map. The first one was Eden in 1996, I believe, based on my rudimentary trail map research. Um, they expanded this more significantly in 1999 with the addition of Egan's and Lewis line. Uh, so at this point, Sugarbush lists 97 acres of wooded terrain, and, and they're not called glades. Uh, Wynn corrected me on that um, in our January interview. Uh, but but why did we suddenly see these wooded areas proliferate in that era, and how did that change the experience of being a Sugarbush? 
Well, I mean, the first thing that I'll mention is that before those uh, glades were, or sorry, wooded areas, thanks for uh, correcting me, Wynn, <laughs> before those wooded areas were uh, in place, you know, you'd get fired for skiing in the woods. So, you know, we, we, full, we fully embraced the, you know, we might have been skiing in the woods prior to that, but, you know, by having these uh, officially opened, that uh, made, made it a sanctioned activity, which was great. But, you know, I think, you know, you look back during that time and, you know, that's what people wanted. They wanted that next adventure. And there was ASC had gone into the Western resorts at that time with Steamboat. And, you know, Steamboat's known for those big open Aspen glades. And I think they were trying to bring some of that, you know, bigger Western skiing to the East Coast resorts that they owned. And, you know, we were a perfect fit for that because we do have the variety of terrain and sort of the all the fun that you can have at a resort. So. I think that's part of the reason why they uh, moved in that direction. And, you know, that was also what our customers wanted. You know, we've got some great skiers here that want to always be challenged and, you know, sneaking into the woods and uh, making some powder turns is what it's all about. Is it weird to think back on that era? Because I, I sometimes, I don't know if you remember this, but in in the mid-90s, when the terrain parks first started coming around, they were snowboard parks and skiers weren't allowed in. And And I, maybe that was just in the Midwest where I was skiing at the time. Uh, but but also, yeah, you, you couldn't ski in the woods almost anywhere. And you'd hear about these few places you could like Steamboat or I think Mad River Glen always had a pretty good tree skiing culture. But but it was it was really rare. And it, as someone who's witnessed that evolution over the last 30 years firsthand and, and watched those decisions being made, is it is it kind of dislocating to think back on that time and how different it was just a few decades ago? Yeah, I mean, I would say it was a bizarre time, you know, when, you know, you had to be clean shaven and you had to wear the exactly same uniform. And you know, there was some some rigid corporate sort of rules that happened in the 80s and 90s that um, and even during the early part of ASC, they had a pretty stringent policy on these things. And that's, you know, the, the whole getting fired for skiing in the woods is one of them. But, you know, I think the, the whole part about skiing is the freedom that it allows you and sort of the, the self-reliance and personal accountability at least for me, that's important. And, you know, I think the progression to be able to explore out on the mountain at your own will is, is important for that. And it's, it's what makes skiing great. And what's your philosophy on the wooded skiing these days? I, I know you have some, some wooded areas marked on the map. Do skiers have to stick to those areas or if they find a line they like, can they just do it? Yeah, I mean, we, we discourage people from cutting up on the mountain because, one, it's forest service and it's a managed property. And we, I think Wynn probably had mentioned that we have a vegetation management plan that we follow. And that's, you know, it's important to us because we're, you know, stewards of this land. So we don't want people creating a, you know, a, a hazard or a, you know, environmental damage by uh, cutting trees down or ruining the soils or going too close to uh, streams. But, you know, I think it's important, you know, there's there's lines to ski everywhere and, you know, it's important to get out there and, and do it. You know, I think one of the reasons that it's been successful here is that we treat them as wooded areas and we don't open and close them. We sort of let people, you know, this is where we've done some improvements and you decide if you're, if the conditions are right for you. And basically the only restriction we have is you can't enter or exit onto a closed trail. Yeah. It, it's, you know, Sugarbush is a place where if you don't know your way around, you can get in some trouble. I, I'm curious as, as these wooded areas started spreading across the mountain, as a guy who was on patrol back then, did this make your job more difficult or do you find that skiers are pretty decent in general at self-regulating and staying out of stuff that's over their heads? 
Yeah, I'd say for the most part, people are pretty good. I mean, the the one big downside is that these untracked uh, little areas that we used to ski to ourselves were now suddenly had moguls in them, so we had to mm-hmm. look around for other areas. But, you know, in fact, I think uh, for the most part, people were pretty good. I think in 1999 or 2000, was a uh, it was a great snow year, and I think we had like 13 search and rescues in that one year, and that was like this anomaly of a peak. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, w- one of them, you know, lasted over 24 hours, and I still think the uh, four kids were at some, you know, condo that they didn't want their parents to know because we, we searched. We had, we had helicopters out. We, we were searching oh, all over the place, and we never found them. So. Did they have to pay for that? I, you know, I don't even remember at that point besides the fact that it just didn't make any sense. You know, we had skied off the backside into Jerusalem and followed any track that we could find out in the woods. And, you know, and then we found the kids were, you know, sitting at Alan's Lodge the next day. You know, <laughs> it's like, wait a second. <laughs> so so where is it that you find folks get into the most trouble these days? Because it's, you know, everything is fairly well marked as far as resort boundaries. However, it, you know, there's there's a pretty good snowpack up there and it can be tempting to duck those ropes. I, I was talking to the GM of Sugarbush or Sugar Loaf recently, and he said, you know, you look off the backside of the mountain and it looks great. He said, but you get three turns down and you're spending the night. So is is there a part of, of Sugarbush that you consistently find people kind of wandering where they shouldn't be and getting in, into trouble? Yeah, I would say the, the biggest problem area that we would have is off of the top of Northridge. People will will go down sort of like by the long trail, and they think that they're on the uh, eastern side of the slope, but they're on the western mm-hmm. side because mm-hmm. it's it sort of it's a it's a shoulder there, and so then they think to come back, they just need to you know uh, they think they should be going right, and all that does is bring them further away from the resort. Okay. And so we'll find them and bring them out down by the Jerusalem store and. But, you know, like I said, most of the time, you know, we're getting a phone call on those or, you know, with today's cell phone technology, when people get lost, they call us pretty relatively quickly. And we've got a great radio system that, you know, we basically talk them through how to send us their coordinates off their phone. And then we just guide mm-hmm. a patroller into where they are. You know, our radios have GPS in them. So it's you're able to tell them, you know, oh, you need to go left another couple hundred yards and then you're going to go, you know, you can guide them in. It's pretty nice. So it sounds like the the biggest uh, injury is probably to their egos in that case. Absolutely, and and the loss <laughs> of time for the for the uh, employees. Right. It, it sounds like you're fortunate that cell service works, even if you get into like Slidebrook or something. I, I guess that's that that's not the case at a lot of mountains where if you if you get off the main path, your cell phone is quit. Exactly. No, we've got great service here. Both, you know, all of the carriers are actually covered. Um, and as I look out my window, I can see the tower on their shoulder here. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, it, it's it, that is helpful. And that's one of the other nice things, you know, from people that come up here to vacation. It's like, you know, they can actually, if they want to, stay connected. So I, I realize you were, you know, working at lower level jobs at the time during the ASC era. But as an observer, as someone who was getting to know the resort really well. What were you thinking as you watched all this rapid change under ASC? Did it seem like too much, too fast, or was ASC making necessary upgrades to modernize the resort? You know, I would say it seemed sort of normal. You know, when you look back at that time, that expansion was happening everywhere in the 80s and 90s. And, mm-hmm. you know, I would go skiing out west and, you know, you know, looking at Beaver Creek and how it transformed, you know, from 
you know, to everything seemed brand new there in the 90s, you know. So right. I, I would say that the, during that time, you just saw a huge expansion. So it seems rather normal. I mean, obviously, there was a little bit of pushback on, on the Grand Summit and sort of the trying to cookie cutter. The valley was not going to happen here. And mm-hmm. But beyond that, you know, I think it was, uh, you know, as an employee, it was appreciated to sort of see some modernization and really see some expansion. So ASC did a lot of good, no doubt, for the mountain. Uh, nonetheless, they started to have some financial issues in the late 90s, early 2000s. Just curious, as someone who was on the ground at that time, was morale affected by this, this sense that maybe ASC wasn't doing so good? Oh, 100%. You know, <laughs> we uh, we had all this new stuff, and then all of a sudden there was zero capital, zero investment and interest, really, it seemed, in Sugarbush. You know, we weren't allowed to compete with Killington for opening early or being late, you know, the focus was really on the Western resorts, you know, East coast was everything was filtered through Sunday river. So we definitely felt a little out of it back then, but you know, there were major cutbacks and sort of the staffing and the maintenance and sort of the services that we provided. And, you know, I can tell you that, you know, the annual reports were in the patrol shacks and so, and they were scrutinized pretty heavily, mm-hmm. you know, ASC being publicly traded, you, you saw where the money was going. And were you seeing like staff cuts on the mountains and, and other things that would frustrate you as, as they, you know, after they dumped all this money to the mountain, did it feel like they kind of gave up on it? Yeah, I would say that's a pretty adequate or accurate description of it. Yeah. You know, you'd be working and all of a sudden, all, you know, Hey, everyone needs to leave or, you know, there was no overtime, but everyone was expected to do five jobs. And, but, you know, again, it was sort of, that was the only experience that a lot of us had. And it was like, you know, we're dedicated skiers. So it's like whatever we needed to do to keep the mountain open and keep skiing. You know, you said something interesting about uh, ASC not letting you compete with Killington. And, and for those who don't know, ASC owned both uh, Killington and Sugarbush and also Mount Snow, Sunday River, a bunch of other places. Um, you know, I asked when on the interview in January, if he would ever want to compete with Killington for first open or last to close. He said, no, no way. Um, we're not set up for it, but curious what your philosophy is on that. I agree completely. <laughs> we'll, we'll let Mike, uh, be open first and last. That, that can be his, uh, his deal. Um, you know, I think we, we try to, you know, get open the first weekend before Thanksgiving and stay open for the first weekend in May. That's a good season. Allows us to get open for the summer and, uh, you know, if they want to extend it two weeks on either side of that, good for them. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's almost half the year. That's that's an amazing season. Um, so the ASC business model, it didn't end up working out. Uh, but, you know, in the end, they did do a lot to modernize the mountain. Do you think they focused on the right upgrades to build a foundation for what modern Sugarbush looks like today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like but putting in all the infrastructure and really trying to build the Lincoln Peak side up with snowmaking and with the lifts, it really allowed us to, you know, develop that pod skiing that we have here where you can ski the Valley House pod, the Heaven's Gate pod, North Links. You can ski all these different areas, Castle Rock, of course. And, you know, without, you know, having to get mixed back in with the rest of the crowd, you're not all going to the same all getting dropped off at the same spot and all getting picked up at the same spot. So at Sugarbush, you can sort of ski different zones. You know, every single lift is almost its own zone, which is great. Yeah, it, it's amazing. I mean, every little pod at Sugarbush really feels like its own little ski area. Curious what your favorite pod is. Well, I, I uh, got hooked on Castle Rock early, so that is my, my favorite spot to hide out. But unfortunately, it's not that easy to hide out these days. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. And it's, 
it, it is Castle Rock has no snowmaking. Is that right? Correct. It's all natural. You know, great fall line skiing and you know low traffic and nice and quiet. That's what I like. Yeah, and and you know, for those who are not familiar necessarily, because we have a lot of listeners out in the West or the Midwest and in the uh, the West Coast. If you want to know how much snow the good Vermont ski areas get, I was on Castle Rock, I think it was April 18th, a couple of years ago, and I was still skiing bumps underneath the chair. I mean, and it was, it was a deep snowpack. So that, and that's with no snowmaking. Yeah, no, it's, uh, when it's, when it's good there, it is really good. And you know, that's, we, we, we take a lot of pride in getting that open or at least having it accessible to the skiers. And, you know, it's one of the, the reasons that I'm here is that terrain right there. Have there been years where you weren't able to open it or only were able to open it for a little while? Yeah, I think um, the worst year it was only open like 45 days. Um, oh, wow. Which that's still pretty good. Is, well, it's that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely, you know, a, a difficult area if we're not in a good snow cycle. So, and, and you don't really groom that area. Is that right? That's that's correct. You know, we'll go up there if we're having a great season and, you know, the, the lines really aren't developed well or if it's, you know, it just, you know, occasionally we'll go, you know, I would say once every couple of years we go up there and we'll groom out um, Castle Rock Run and really try to push snow. It's mostly to do the, the bottom of the lift to get snow stacked in to try and so that's the spot that melts out earliest. Yeah, as, as a guy who likes terrain variety, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate that because there's there's so many Northeast ski areas that groom every run every night. And I get it. You know, th- this is a, a kind of a grooming culture as far as the type of skiers that we have out here. But but it gets a little boring when every run is like that on a mountain that has 100 trails. Absolutely. And, you know, that is not a problem here. We've got a great, great spread of variety and, you know, a little bit for everybody. And uh, we, that's our philosophy is that we really want to groom to if it improves the, the trail. It's not grooming it because you have to. Yeah, and it's not just Castle Rock. I mean, you leave some bumps all over the mountain. I mean, Steins, obviously, but but other places as well. Yeah, and we've been doing a lot of half and halves, like on Lower Grinder and on Which Way, and you know, where where people can you know still ski groomer if they want to, but if they want to you know test their uh, their skills, they can you know t- turn to the side of the trail and get some moguls in without it being too intimidating, where you're into it for the entire run. So that's been, it's been great for us. And, you know, I think the customers here really appreciate that as well. Yeah, no, I, I for one love it. it. It's more of a, something you see out West, but, but that's one thing I really appreciate about Sugarbush and um, I think a lot of other folks do as well. So you move on from the ASC era in 2001, a group led by Wynn Smith buys the mountain. Uh, did you know Wynn when he bought it and what was your reaction to this group buying it? Yeah, I had uh, never heard of him, and <laughs> in my mind, it was the third third owner that I'd worked for, and I think the fifth or sixth leadership change by 2001. Okay. So the, the attitude was, um, you know, really anything is better than ASC at the time, and uh, okay. we were excited for for the change. And what was your job at the time, John? I was a ski. Actually, that was the year I became ski patrol director. Oh, great! And so, did you were you working with Win right away? No, so Wynn spent the first couple of years, um, Bob and uh, Tom McHugh were up here running the resort, you know, until Wynn, the other other way around, Tom, then Bob, um, and then Wynn sort of really stepped in. And, and were you, was there any trepidation among you in particular or, or just the staff in general about, hey, these, these guys, 
they're not in the ski business. They don't know what they're doing. Was there any concern like that? Um, obviously there's always concern with any sort of change, but, um, you know, really they had some local people that were in charge and sort of seemed to be making the right decisions and listening to what, what the people in town and the skiers wanted from the resort. And, you know, so I think things went pretty well. There, there was a lot of uh, trust that had gotten eroded during the ASC time, and so that was probably the thing that took the longest um, to build back was the sense of community and the ability to know that the resort is here for you know for the for the community and not just um, for their own personal interest. And I think you know even just in the beginning AS, or after the ASC days, you know some adventures, which was the company that went owned. You know, they did a good job of, of putting that message out and really standing behind it. And it, as as it became apparent that Summit Ventures was the right owner and that Wynn was the right leader, how did the experience of working there change as far as morale goes, as far as, you know, your confidence that you were at a place that had a great future, as far as just your, your general level of energy and and uh, and commitment to the place. How, how did that all amp up as you, as this ownership group settled in? Yeah, obviously, you know, there was a lot of excitement and, you know, with change, it was like, okay, what, what's the next new thing that we're going to be doing? You know, like we looked at some, you know, resort development pieces to it. And, you know, I think the best thing was to, uh, get rid of the old, uh, Green Mountain slug and, uh, put a brand <laughs> new, <laughs> the brand new Green Mountain Express in. And, you know, they, they've done a lot, of, they did a lot of great things where it was, you know, slow, thoughtful growth, listening to the customers, listening to the employees here at the resort. And, um, you know, it was nice having the local ownership and, you know, we weren't filtering everything through Maine and, uh, you know, the focus was on the community and making the place a better place to ski and working on the deferred maintenance. And as you said, it was your third ownership group. And at that point, you know, it had been less than a decade. At what point did you start to feel confident that you were in a more stable situation? Was was there a moment where you you really realized, okay, this group's in command. They're they're doing a great job. They're rebuilding everything with the community. This place is on the right track. Yeah, I would say you know once we built Claybrook, um, so I think that was two thousand six or seven. You saw sort of a change in sort of a more long term. Everything suddenly became. It wasn't like what are we doing next year. It was more of all right. This is the goal for what we want to be in five years, or this is where we want to be down the road. And there was really a commitment to the long term vision of of the resort, as opposed to everything seemed so short term prior to that. You know, everything was. You know, it's, it's super easy to uh, to make decisions if you're. Uh, or sorry, it's hard to make decisions if you're not profitable. And then once you become a little, little more profitable, it's like suddenly you can have a little bit longer. It's not just survival. So for those who aren't familiar with Claybrook, can you talk a little bit about that project and, and how that changed Sugarbush? Yeah. So um, prior to the Claybrook um, residences going in, you know, there was really no on-mountain, slopeside, right in the base area lodging. And so you know, this development went in and it really, you know, created a base area for us that was not just, a, you know, we had a gravel parking lot with some temporary buildings prior to that. You know, I think nothing is more temporary or nothing's more permanent than a temporary building at a ski resort. <laughs> so we had these uh, things that were thrown together in one fall and, you know, 15 years later, they were still there. Um, so those got torn down and, you know, it really changed sort of the uh, the look and feel of the base area and made it a little more uh, gentrified. And, uh, you know, I think it revitalized, really. It made it a place you wanted to hang out as opposed to the windswept uh, 
Dust Bowl that we had prior to yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. So as you think back on that era and, and watching how Wynn came in, and, and as you said, you didn't know him. A, a lot of other folks probably didn't either. Um, they didn't come in as folks who were experienced in the ski business. Uh, as, as you think back on watching how he sort of took control of the resort and and gradually won everyone's trust over time, can you draw any lessons from that that you can apply to your own transition into the top job, acknowledging that your circumstances are very different? Everyone knows you. You've been there for 30 years. But but can you learn from his example as you think back on that era? Uh, yeah, I mean, clearly we have the same background of Wall Street together. And, oh, wait, no, you're right. Uh, no. <laughs> You know, I think the key that, you know, I, I picked up from Wynn is, you know, really it's the thoughtful, you know, you need to look at everything through the lens of the customer experience. And and really, as long as you're staying true to what your customers want and what, you know, is the right decision for them, you're going to be making the right decisions. And so, you know, I think as we go through a lot of our meetings and planning, things like that, that's, you know, we're focusing on the, the guest experience, and that's the key. And, you know, knowing that we're part of a community and we need to – uh be cognizant of that, and really, you know, that's the other filter that we put it through. So, I, you know, I appreciate everything that Wynn has done up here at the resort and really appreciate, you know, the time that he spent. Actually, he was in here for about an hour before this phone call. We were chatting about the upcoming season and what was going to happen. <laughs> what have you learned from Wynn about leadership and about building and sustaining that Sugarbush community? You know, I think that, you know, the, the key is to be honest and sort of truthful and, you know, not all it's not always the answer people are going to want to hear but if it's the right answer that's what you should be saying and you know i think that you know we celebrate you know what makes sugarbush great and you know that's what you have to do and if you can't be something to you can't be everything to everybody so you do have to uh take a stand on certain things and that's what you have to stand behind it have you been tested in that way yet <laughs> every day <laughs> <laughs> Is that COVID specific or, 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 or just, is that just the reality of running a place as big and complex as Sugarbush? I think it's, uh, you know, the COVID piece is uh, definitely a huge challenge this year, this year. but uh, yeah, I think anytime there's a change in leadership, there's, it's a chance for people to uh, renegotiate their positions and, uh, you know, try. <laughs> it's been, a, it's been an exciting couple months. Right. Okay. So going back to last November, there was a huge transition. Uh, Altera announced that they were purchasing Sugarbush after a very long period of independence. Um, after, you know, the, once the ASC era ended, it was an independent resort for 18 years. Uh, how long did you know this was coming, John? And what did you think about the transition from being an independent to being part of this big conglomerate that's based in Colorado? Yeah, so um, both Kevin and I were in on it right from the start and sort of trying to work the whole to, to make the deal be successful and to make sure that it was the right fit for us. I mean, Wynn had been hinting, um, you know, for a while that the business climate in Vermont, you know, both the cost of doing business and the consolidation with Vail Resorts and Peak, and, you know, it was it was getting to be a difficult climate to, to be an independent here it, with such a large area that we have, you know, with the two separate businesses of the base areas and, you know, 4,000-acre footprint, you know, it's 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 a big uh, it's a big resort to be independent and be in the east. <laughs> so yeah, you know, I think you know we we worked with them. I mean, 
all along, we'd been a partner with ICON and had worked with the, this group really in the Mountain Collective during the formation of ICON. So we were impressed with their transparency and sort of their vision. And, you know, we it was exciting to sort of be part of it. I mean, when you look at their vision, you know, they're one company with many unique brands building a global community. It's like, who doesn't want to be part of that? And how has the transition gone? Have there been any bumps? Oh, there's definitely pumped, been some bumps. You know, there's this global pandemic happening. I don't know if anyone's heard about that. Um, right. And then, you know, like there's, you know, some stuff. What normally would happen is this transition would happen, and then all of the teams would come out, and we would be like, all right, this is how we're getting onboarded onto the just as simple as the email system. And, but all of mm-hmm. the stuff has been remote or sort of postponed due to COVID. And, you know, we're still, you know, right now we're operating on our own. Uh, well, anyway, there's a whole bunch of things that are are not uh, integrated as of quite yet. So, you know, the integration has been uh, a big bump in the road just because of, you know, the inability for people to travel here and for us to really get and the fact that business has been shuttered in parts of the country. So, yeah, and I think the reality is I've been part of a few mergers myself and the reality is to companies coming together or, you know, a, a smaller piece being added to a bigger piece, there's always going to be some bumps along the way. Uh, but nonetheless, Altera took over. Uh, Wynn felt that after several months, um, he was in a good position to be able to pass the baton off. So now you were in charge. I think you've been probably focused on COVID since day one, but, but thinking past COVID, because someday it will end, um, what do you see, John? What, what is your vision? Uh, for for the future of Sugarbush and the next steps in its evolution, you know we've got some short and long term projects that we're that we've been working on for a couple of years now. So we really are going to focus on on those and sort of improve our snowmaking system. We've been looking at some small train expansions and if that's going to be skin access only or if that'll be off of lift service. We've got a couple different things that we've been you know out flagging out in the woods. I just was picking pine needles out of my backpack after uh, doing a little exploratory run with uh, Eric from our, uh, from planning. So, um, you know, we've, we've got some things that, you know, we know we need to continue to adapt and evolve and provide more excitement and adventure for our customers. So, you know, nothing that I can really get into too, too soon, but uh, you know, we've got some stuff in the hopper. Any hints you can give us on where those terrain expansions might be? So if uh, someone were, wanted to look at our master plan from 1995, there's a lot of zones that were already sort of predestined or predesigned to be expansion areas. And, uh, you know, the one I was looking at was over at Mount Ellen above Inverness and, you know, trying to see if, what was a, if that was even going to be viable. You know, I've been looking at this map since the 90s. And uh, it's the first time I've actually hiked up and down it versus coming over from Mad River and skiing some of the lines in there. So it was good to see it in in the summer on the ground and sort of see what was actually happening versus uh, the excitement of just skiing. So is there a version of future Sugarbush where you're cutting more trails? Are you thinking more uh, of these wooded areas and and a sort of adventurous kind of uh, skinning hybrid style thing like you just described? I think it's probably both. But I mean, obviously, anything we're going to do, we need to make sure we're doing it right. So, you know. The key is making slow, uh, deliberate decisions. So that's that's what we're gonna do. We did some scouting in the summer. We're gonna do some scouting this winter, and uh, before we even get to permitting. So, but I could and, see us doing both. And Slidebrook Basin is completely out of bounds for development, right? Off limits. Correct. It, but you do do cat skiing back there, right? 
We don't do cat skiing back there. We do cat skiing um, currently. It's at Lincoln Peak, and then once Lincoln Peak closes, we'll bring the cat over to Mount Ellen, and you can rent the whole resort um, for the day for cat skiing. Oh, interesting. Yeah, we closed up the last week in March. So usually, you know, like you mentioned, there's some good April snow, and uh, we'll have that available over on the other side. And do you think there's potential to expand that business? Because you, you do have a pretty, like you said, 4,000 acres, and, and a very small percentage of that is, uh, you know, cut trails. Yeah, I, I, you know, the cat skiing itself is a little bit difficult because you have to put a road in the cat can get up and down. And, you know, not to say that, you know, the thing this above Inverness couldn't actually be something just like that. But, you know, we're we're going to look at all the options and really see what fits best for us and fits into uh you know, for our customers and for, uh, you know, what works here in the Valley. So long-term, any lift upgrades that you're eyeballing? Um, you know, I think if you talk to anyone that works at Iscaria, there's always lift upgrades that they would want. Um, mm-hmm. You know, right now we're in a pretty good spot. We've done quite a bit of maintenance and uh, capital improvements over the summer, new drives and two of the lifts. Um, there's a brand new lift over at Mount Ellen, GMVS put in. It's a new T-bar that goes almost the full length of Inverness. And uh, it's about ride time is about half of what the Inverness chair is. So, you know, there's some stuff that's happening currently, and then uh, we'll see what happens in the future. I mean, obviously, Bravo is a workhorse for us. And with the exception of this year, usually runs every month of the year. So, you know, that's probably due for an upgrade before some of the others. But there's also some, you know, like I said, there's three lifts that are in there still the same lifts that were here when I started. And which three are those? It's Heaven's Gate, Summit. And, uh, oh, Inverness, uh, of course. So are you happy with the functioning of those three lifts in general? Yeah, we've done um, drive upgrades to them, control upgrades to them. We've been, you know, keeping the maintenance up on the carriers and the line equipment. So, yes, they, they're great alpha terminals that, you know, I was over in Switzerland a couple of years ago, and they're, all of those alpha terminals are older than ours, and they're still functioning over there. So it's a good good indication that they can last a long time. So as you mentioned earlier, uh, when was in your office this morning, um, just talking about the mountain, my understanding is he'll stay on it as an advisor. Uh, how has he helped you so far with the transition, and, and how do you expect to tap into his expertise and experience in the future? Yeah, he's a great resource for me and for the resort. And, you know, he, he he's a very dedicated person to the valley and to the mountain. So, you know, and I and I trust him, so that's that's the key. And you know, he's accessible to us, and you know, he's interested in being involved. I think he was less interested being a, on all the conference calls and the, the the COVID environment that we were living in was not ex- extremely fun. So I think he deserves to uh, get out and enjoy himself, and that's what he's planning on doing. But you know, he's got great insight into the financial world and the sort of how the the inner workings. You know, as the um, chairman at NSA. You know, he, he's had some great connections and conversations, and, you know, he's always happy to pass that information on. So I've been having the weekly tap-in uh, meeting with him, and I, I look forward to having those on snow with him soon. Is he trying to sneak in a couple turns today? He was uh, bringing his skis up to the base area to get them all moved in, <laughs> so he, he was ready to go. So I'm, I'm sure that uh, I'll be able to get more information out of him if I can get him on a chairlift before we open. So. <laughs> Wynn is well known for skiing at least 100 days every season. Uh, do you have personal ski goals, John, to get in a certain number of days every year? You know, I, I like to ski every day, so that that's always been my goal. So um, I don't have a, a number, but uh, I do like to ski uh, quite a bit. So we'll see. I know that uh, 
I generally try to beat win. So with him retired, I'm going to have to really work uh, extra hard to make sure I get extra days in. You should skin up today, get a couple, get a little head start on him. Yeah, do a, go clean off the snow stake. That's a great idea. <laughs> uh, so I want to talk a little bit about passes here. This will be your first year that the Icon Pass is the default season pass for Sugarbush. Um, it comes with some pretty good add-ons. So folks who are used to just getting a, a season pass at Sugarbush and it's just a season pass at Sugarbush, they now get five or seven days at Killington or Sugarloaf, Sunday River, and Loon. They also have a season pass at Stratton and a ton of Western access if they want to take a trip out there. Um, have your season pass holders been pretty satisfied overall with this transition? Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously, the price really hasn't changed from what they were paying in the past, and it just is all added benefit to them. So, um, you know, I think they're pretty excited. You know, we were the number one exporter of skiers when we were part of the Mountain Collective. We still we still are part of the Mountain Collective, but you know, when your uh, your premium pass holders could use that for fifty percent off at other resort um, at other Mountain Collective resorts, and Little little Sugarbush was crushing, you know, Mammoth for the number of people that would go and ski, you know, at Jackson and Alta and Aspen and all of the other areas. That, you know, our skiers are diehards and they take advantage of uh, the other skiing because, you know, they're dedicated to it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think, you know, overall they're very excited. Yeah, that's, that's not surprising at all. The the quality of skier you see at, at Sugarbush and just in the Matter River Valley in general it's pretty phenomenal because, as you know, all ski areas are not created equal. And I think the skiers know that as well. And they tend to congregate where the best terrain is. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, We've got a friend of ours from Sugarloaf that was over here for a winter. And, you know, I'd ride the chair with him. And he was, he was always saying, you know, like, how come everyone is a good skier here? You know, you guys, you know, it was it was a market, a difference compared to some of the other resorts that he had been skiing at. So, no, it's good. It's yeah. We've got great terrain and, you know, it's a welcoming, embracing community that people like to join and be, you know, part of the part of it. And that just makes it more exciting to go out and ski more and, uh, you know, keep up. So in, in addition to the Icon Pass, Altera did let Sugarbush keep a couple of its local passes. So you still have the Midweek Boomer Pass. Uh, you have the Sugarbush Value Pass, which is good at Mount Ellen all season and Lincoln Peak during the week and when Mount Ellen isn't open. Talk about your decision to keep these passes and why those particular offerings made sense. Yeah, again, this is a great example of where, you know, Altera has been super flexible and, you know, transparent in in what they allow the resorts to do, individual resorts. And, you know, we made the case that this was important to our local market and to sort of what our customers wanted. And they were fully on board with it, which was great. And, so it allows us to do that. You know, obviously this year is going to be a huge test for us with the restrictions that we're sort of seeing out on the on the mountain and what's uh, of the ability availability of people to actually travel to Vermont. So we're going to see what happens. But you know, like I said, they Altera has been great in allowing these local passes and sort of what each resort needs for its own good. So uh, we're really happy with that. You also kept the college pass with Mad River Glen, which is awesome. And, and a lot of people don't realize Mad River Glen is, is right next door to Sugarbush. Um, talk about your decision to keep that pass and your partnership with Mad River Glen. Yeah, so, you know, we share a property line, which is, uh, you know, great. And, you know, they're a great community neighbor. Um, I talked to Matt a couple of times over the last uh, couple of weeks. Um, you know, it, it just makes sense. It makes the Valley a stronger community. And, you know, we're we're all aligned in that we, you know, want it to be a vibrant ski town and, a resort, you know, this is, we're offering the same thing. Great, great recreation adventure. So, 
you know, it's it's good to partner with them. We don't really see them as competition as much as a uh, another asset in the valley. Both tremendous mountains and and uh, great to have them right next door to each other, and that you you're able to do some kind of partnership with them. Uh, quickly going back to March fifteenth, the COVID shutdown. Wynn was still running the mountain at that point, but as head of Mountain Ops, I imagine you were pretty involved. Take us back to that weekend, John. Uh, what was the atmosphere like on the mountain, and what was it like in the back offices? Yeah, I mean, as you can imagine, March is like the best time to be at a ski resort. You know, all the trains open, the days are getting longer. You know, you think it's March and it's powder days and sunshine. You know, that's not what you think about right. your normal Vermont skiing. So, you know, I can tell you that that was what we were thinking about, you know, still, you know, in our heart of hearts. But, you know, we, we were seeing the the writing on the wall, you know, we were super concerned about what was being reported around us. And, um, you know, we had pulled half the tables out of the base lodges. There was hand sanitizer everywhere. We had removed our singles lines. Um, there was a lot of uncertainty of what you could and could not do and how this disease was being spread. But, um, you know, when you talk about bumps in the transition with Altera, you know, that's a perfect example. We were on our own separate email server at the time. So when the company-wide email went out, we didn't get it. Mm. So, so, wow. You know, we were like, wait, what happened here? So, you know, it, it, um, but, you know, like, it, you know, that night, like, I got a, I got the email alert about um, the announcement, and I called Wynn, and it went to his voicemail. So I called Rusty, and, you know, he answered the phone and gave me the skinny on what was going on. And as he's talking to me, I can just hear his phone ringing and ringing, all, you know, going crazy. So, you know, it's a bump in the road, but it also shows that there's great connection of, you know, their accessibility. So, but anyway, sorry, back to the COVID and March 15th. So, you know, we saw what was going on. Obviously, that's not what we wanted to have happen. Um, we didn't want to close. We're dedicated skiers. We're disappointed that we couldn't offer it, but it was the right decision to make. And, um, you know, ultimately, you know, when you look at what happened over, you know, we're in the state we're in right now, you know, it's it's not over yet. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, it was looking back, it was definitely the right decision. I, I think at the time there was just a lot of confusion and a lot of different plans. Sugarbush had said in an email a couple of days before that the mountain intended to stay open for as long as it could. Uh, but this seems like the first big moment when it was clear that Sugarbush could no longer act on its own. Was that kind of a reality check for for the senior leadership team that, okay, we're part of this larger group. Um, some things are going to be beyond our control at this point. Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit chaotic. And, um, you know, but ultimately, I look at it more as an asset to us that, you know, we can sort of have this, you know, greater uh, depth of knowledge to pick from and, and resources to use. And, you know, having worked with this team now, you know, for almost a year or a little over a year through the acquisition, um, you know, I, I would say that we're all like-minded in what we want to be doing, which is, you know, to be out there and providing great skiing and, you know, but we also know we need to make tough choices and, you know, we need to make sure that we're looking at the long-term goal of all the resorts. So, you know, I think, you know, going through the summer, we've made, you know, I think our playbook is up to 80 pages. That's uh, Altera wide. And then we have our own Sugarbush one about, you know, how we should operate and sort of minimum guidelines. And that's the sort of stuff that, you know, that's where we see great value for, for us is that resource and having, you know, be able to pool the sort of teams together and get people to collaborate on, on best practices. So. All right, John. Well, last question before I let you go here, uh, you show up at Sugarbush this year. 
what can skiers expect to see? How are things going to be different? So the key for everything is going to be planning. You know, you need to uh, plan your day ahead of time. So we're going to plan on having as much snowmaking going as possible. We're going to plan on running as many lifts as we can. So that's our on our end. But, you know, as a customer, you're going to want to plan your day ahead of time. If you, I think you mentioned that if you have a pass, you know, you can have direct access, but we are limiting our tickets. Um, so you're going to want to plan to buy, book your tickets online ahead of time. You're going to book your rentals on online ahead of time. Everything will be online. So make sure you've got your cell phone charged and uh, bring an extra battery if you need to. You know, people are going to boot up in their cars. You know, you're expected to wear a face covering unless you're seated and eating. And, uh, you know, carry your own hand sanitizers. Keep yourself safe. Um, you know, plan on limited capacities in the base lodges. I mean, we're looking at anywhere from like low, high teens to below 50% capacity in a lot of our mm-hmm. uh, indoor spaces. So, you know, this is not the year to skimp on good gear. So make sure you're dressed in layers and uh, have, your, uh, have, your, have your plan out there. So, you know, the other thing is, you know, bus capacities at half, so slide brick access is going to be a little challenging for those that uh, venture out that way. But um, we do have some other great plans with, like, new food outlets and sort of trying to make the best of the situation. We've installed a lot of outside heaters. I think I mentioned we're building these little cabins that people can rent, so their own little personal base lodges. But the key is going to be to plan your day ahead of time. And I'm sorry, one more thing before I let you go. Give us an update on the the Adaptive Center at Mount Allen. Yeah, so um, they're still actually waiting on their Act 250 permit right now. Um, Mm. I think that, you know, at the last time we spoke, they were still planning to break ground in April. Um, I'm not sure if that's going to be the case. I don't, if you've tried to buy a $10 two-by-four lately, you know, you can see that the uh, the price is more than doubled. So I'm not sure right. where they are in their fundraising and the ability to do the program just due to the cost of construction right now. But we hope so. You know, it's a great addition, and it's a great program that we fully support. So, you know, we hope that that can work out. I'm just not sure if the funding will be there for this coming year. All right. Well, it sounds like you've had your hands full. I really cannot thank you enough for taking the time as you're getting ready for this very weird ski season to come on and and talk me through all of it. So thank you very much. I wish you the best of luck this winter and your first winter as GM. And congratulations again on that job. Uh, Thank you very much, Stuart. And we'll uh, look forward to seeing you up here. That's John Hammond, President and General Manager of Sugarbush, Vermont. Sugarbush Gears, I would be feeling very good about that hire if I were you. That's someone who knows that mountain, loves that mountain, and who's going to be a very good steward to it for as long as he's around. Thank you very much for that, John. And thank you all for listening. If you listen on one of the podcast services, iTunes or Spotify, but you don't subscribe to the Storm Scheme newsletter, you're missing a lot. There's a newsletter that goes along with this, and it's all about Northeast skiing. You're going to want to get in on that by signing up for the free email list at skiing.substack.com. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester. Talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.